All right. We have been working on, for the Bible study exercise, Matthew chapter 24. This is part six. Yeah, part six today. We've done a, uh, a lot of kind of laying the foundation. So a couple of things for everyone listening online who's participating in the Bible study exercise. You're now free to access the curriculum. In fact, we'll be looking at the curriculum here in just a few minutes. We'll be talking about that. So if you have access to it, you'll want to go ahead and open that. Um, we've been doing a lot of work. The last time we were together, we did a lot of church history, did we not? And we did a lot of church history to establish what was kind of the goal of all of that church history. We went through the different attempts. Think of it this way. When we read the Bible, we all know the Bible seems to refer to this idea of Christ coming back, second coming, and lots of prophecies. Yes? And there's been lots of ways of trying to understand exactly what, what's going on, when is it going to happen, how is it going to happen, has it happened, and all of these questions. So we started looking at a lot of people's attempts to come up with their ideas and theories. Yes? And we made it all the way up to which system? Preterism. All right. So we're just going to be get, we're going to, this is going to be kind of a lot. We're going to be doing a lot of different things tonight. Okay. So hopefully everyone is okay with that. All right. We're going to be, because we have a lot of like just a few things to clean up before then we really start working on Matthew 24 from a preterist point of view. All right. So let's do this. What is preterism. That's what we're going to, that's the first thing we're going to work on tonight. What is preterism? I'm not going to go back and review all of the history and all the names, but this is very important. All right. This is not in my notes, but I want everyone to write this down because this is conveniently, in my opinion, left out of R.C. Sproul's book, or at least up to the point that I've looked at, or maybe I've missed something. But I will say this. It's often left out of the conversation. So what is preterism? Think of it this way. Preterism is a theological view of end times that originated... Does anybody remember? You don't have to remember the name. Does anybody remember the date of the individual? Okay, 50. It comes from the Counter-Reformation... Okay, right. And it was put forth by a Jesuit priest. So, preterism is a theological view of the end times that originates from within Catholicism. That's what I want you to see. Now, does that mean it should be immediately rejected? No. But at least we have to acknowledge where it arises from. And there could have been, how could we say, motivation for this particular view and what could have been that motivation. If we have counter-reformation, you're trying to answer the views of the reformers and what was a very common view among many of the reformers. Pope is Antichrist. Catholic Church is the great persecutor spoken of in the Bible. Well, if you come up with preterism, you throw out all of those claims. And you'll see why and just, well, you should already know why, but we'll talk about it, all right? So does that make sense? All right. Now, some would say, well, you sound like you're already against it, so why go through Matthew 24 trying to look at it from a preteristic point of view? Because what do we always try to do? We try to be fair and forget whatever views we, we currently hold to. We throw those out to see, 
And sometimes, what's, sometimes, you know what I think sometimes the best way to figure out for sure, to strengthen what you believe is by looking at all the other theories. Because by the time you're done, you may be even more convinced and your view will be even strengthened by doing that. It may be painful. You may not like it. But by the time you're done, you can be like, well, none of these other views make any sense if we are fair with them. Or we can just simply create straw men to knock them down. And I try, I, hopefully I don't do that. All right, everybody ready? So, according to preterism, all prophecy in the Bible is history. That's a, a good way of putting it. According to preterism, all prophecy in the Bible is what? History. Prophecy equals history according to preterism. The preterism formula is prophecy equals history. Prophecy equals history. Now, make sure we understand. It may have been prophecy to the original recipients, but it is history for us. Is that a, is that a better way of it? Because we want to be fair. So in other words, when the, when the prophecy was originally given, it was prophecy, but now it is history. All prophecy has been fulfilled. Yes. Yes. All right. The preterist interpretation of Scripture regards the book of Revelation as a symbolic picture of first century conflicts, not a description of what will occur in the end times. So Revelation is about first century conflict. Now, you see how a lot of things we're doing Sunday morning is connecting with our study in Matthew 24. There's, there's convergence here. What did we look up this morning? The Revelation was written when? Okay, yeah, well, some try to claim 54, but most put it around 96. Now, why is that important? Well, if you're going to claim all of Revelation is first century conflict... You, and if it's written in 96, either it's not prophecy at all and it's just telling you what happened but in symbolic forms, which would make no sense. Why are you going to say what happened in 70 AD in symbolic form when it's already happened? That seems weird, right? And if it's symbolic about some first century conflict coming in the future, which conflict is it referencing? To use such catastrophic language. 70 AD would make the most sense. So you see why... The, see, the dating of the books is very critical to the preterist point of view. Right? Well, it's really cr- critical to all points of view to some point, but you, you get the idea, all right? Uh, the term preterism comes from the Latin term praetor, or praetor, meaning past, P-R-A-E-T-E-R is the Latin phrase, uh, meaning past, Thus, preterism is the view that the biblical prophecies concerning the end times have already been fulfilled in the past. Preterism is directly opposed to what? Starts with an F. Futurism. Preterism, past. Futurism, future. Futurism sees the end times prophecy as having a still future fulfillment. So you are a preterist or a futurist. 
You're a preterist or a futurist. Now, most Christians grow up and their first encounter with Christianity immediately gives them what kind of a view? A futurist view. Now, we, this is very important. What is the danger of that? What is the danger that the default position is, is futuristic? When you hear the preterist view, your first thought is to do what? Immediately reject it because you, and th- this is true in all forms of theology. Sometimes the first theology that you're given almost, in a sense, inoculates you from listening or receiving anything else because your first reaction is, well, that can't be right. That can't be right. Just because you weren't taught it at the beginning doesn't mean it's wrong. That's why you can't just reject something based off what? What you have been taught in the past. You don't reject a teaching today because of what you were taught in the past. You reject the teaching today based on your present study that demonstrates the fault with it. Not relying on past conclusions, but relying on present study. Does everyone have that down? You do not reject anything today based off past study. You reject anything today based off present study. Because if your past conclusion was wrong, then you're rejecting present truth based on past error. Nobody wants to be that person. All right? Yes? Okay. And that's why I'm so dogmatic about we got to forget we got to forget what we've learned we got to forget what we've learned. I know I say that over and over and over, and people think it's crazy or think, but I I don't know what. How do you expect? I mean, I don't I don't know how anyone expects to ever move forward. How do you expect? I I want you to answer questions based off what. I want you to base uh, I want you to answer questions based off your current study, not off. Your past learning. Does that make sense? Okay, yes? I mean, like with Matthew 24, we've been studying it now for, well, this is part six. So that's five plus hours of work on it just this time. Not even counting last time, but last time doesn't matter this time. But still, we've been doing a lot of work and there's been homework and all kinds of stuff. All right, so, so preterism is different than Futurism. Preterism sees all prophecy as being fulfilled. Right? Everybody understand that? Preterism is divided into two types. All right? You ready? Now, okay. How do I want to break this down? I'm going to break it down to the simple way and then I'll add to it. You ready? Full preterism, partial preterism. Full or partial? Does anybody know another name for full preterism? Consistent preterism. Now, the article I have in front of me uses a term that I loathe. So I'm not going to use it, but I'll tell you it. Consistent. Consistent. Do what? Oh, yeah, we've talked about preterism in the past, yeah. Okay. But 
There's a term that they use here for full uh, preterism that I hate. And it's the term hyper-preterism. I hate that term. Why do I hate that term? Well, we're Calvinistic, are we not? And why do a lot of people refer to anyone who's just a normal Calvinist as a hyper-Calvinist? Hyper is always like, if you don't like something, you're one of those hyper-Calvinists. What's hyper about it? Like, you've got that extreme form of Calvinism. What's the not extreme form of Calvinism? Like, what, like, sometimes hyper to me is used in a derogatory way just to say, I don't like that. But they can never really articulate, what's the moderate view? Like, what's, what's the moderate view of Calvinism, right? I mean, Calvinism has the basic five, five points, right? So, so if, I'm, if I'm a moderate Calvinist and I reject the five points, can I even be considered a Calvinist? Like, you see, like, it's just, I just don't like that term, hyper. So uh, there, the article here is going to restrict itself to what they call hyper-preterism, uh, but I'm not going to use the term. I'm going to just use, you have the full, and you have the partial. All right? Now, I do agree that being partial preterist can become very inconsistent. I do agree that there is problems there. I think that that is acceptable, right? Okay, does that make sense? All right, let's see what else they have to say here. I don't want to go too much, but all right. For example, preterism denies the future prophetic quality of the book of Revelation. The preterist movement essentially teaches that all the end-time prophecies of the New Testament were fulfilled... 70 AD, when the Romans attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. All right, so all end-time prophecies of the New Testament, all end-time prophecies of the New Testament was fulfilled when? 70 AD, according to the preterist perspective. So if you study the book of Revelation from a preterist perspective, then you do what for the book of Revelation? What do you spend most of your time doing? If you study the book of Revelation from a preterist perspective, what do you spend most of your time doing? Trying to connect it to historical events. All right? So you, you use the symbolism to find the history that it's pointing to. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Now, the problem is if it... They, they typically say, you already see where you get some weird things, because typically preterists say all New Testament prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD, but if Revelation written to after, then guess what you have to do? You have to then say Revelation is writing history in a symbolic way, which then you have a question, what's the point of writing? What happened in a symbolic way? Would that not be confusing? Why did you just say what happened? It already happened. I mean, Josephus wrote his account. Now, it'd be interesting to date when Josephus wrote his account. That would be, that'd be interesting. Okay. But, or you have to then try to find the history, try to look at the symbolism, and then look for future things. You know how difficult that would be? You got these, you got these weird symbols. You're like, okay, all right. All right. Everyone got, grab a history book. All right. What happened between 100 and 200 AD? Does that, does that fit? All right, all right, that is, how about 200 to 300? Do you, do you, it would be impossible to even try to interpret that, wouldn't it? 
Like, you wouldn't be doing cross-references from the Bible. We would need, like, a, a library. Forget commentaries. We'd need a library of history books. Everything that happened from 80 A.D. to 500 A.D. I'm hoping by 500 A.D. I mean, at some point, you're going to become a futurist, okay? <laughs> so at some point, you've got to stop, right? So it, do you know how difficult that would be? I'm like, I don't even know. That, that to me is where it becomes really hard to make it work, right? That, that's where I would have a problem. But just because we may reject certain aspects of preterism, there's still a lot of good things they do. What's probably the, what's the strength of preterism? What's the strength of preterism? Right. The strength of preterism is it makes everyone aware of 70 AD, while the futurist view seems to ignore 70 AD. Right. So the strength is when, in fact, it was preterism that really started making me focus on 70 AD, because before that, I, I mean, other than school, I had not learned much about I didn't learn any. I, look, I didn't learn anything about 70 AD in church. I learned about 70 AD in school. All right. Seventy five. So, I mean, there, there was already an account of 70 AD. And he, did Josephus write it in symbolic way? No, he writes it in a very low. So then why would John come along and go, okay, I'm going to do this on the down low. I'm going to let everyone know what happened in 70 AD in the most symbolic way humanly possible that no one will ever figure out. That just becomes, doesn't make any sense. I, I believe he addresses some of this in the book. Uh, well, well, I may look, I'll look and see. I don't, I'm just focusing on what he does with Matthew 24 right now. So I, it's been a while since I, I can say. I'd have to go. I know he preached sermons on it, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's really, it's usually really, well, there, there's some Lutheran, I've reviewed a couple of Lutheran sermons before uh, where you're kind of like, well, what? Because it's just kind of like all, Basically, the way a lot of preterists view is, it's basically this. There's bad people who do bad things, and God will ultimately win. But we don't really have to get too specific about who these bad people were or what they did. So it's just symbol. It's just, so the symbolism is bad people do bad things, God will ultimately win. And God ultimately won in, in, at the cross 2,000 years ago. So it's just, it becomes very... Like when you listen to it and you're, it's done, you're kind of like, okay, so what, what, I don't really still know what the past, I don't really care to get into too many details. Does that make sense? Like just the general idea is bad things happen and Jesus won. The end. And you're kind of like, oh, that's a lot of chapters to say that over and over in the most bizarre way possible. And then you die, and you either go to heaven or hell. Yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, Jesus basically, I mean, remember, there's two different forms of preterism, but some would probably argue that Jesus came back in 70 AD. And he initiated the spiritual kingdom. Well, it could all blow up and end. I mean, they won't say the world won't end, but as far as some cataclysmic thing to fulfill biblical prophecy, no. If that makes sense. Now, the partial one may throw in uh, 80% of it's been fulfilled, but that 10 or 15% is still left. Well, then that's where some will say is inconsistent preterism. Does that make sense? All right.
Okay, let, let, let's see how far we can get here, all right? Uh, so, but they, they, they point to New Testament prophecy being fulfilled when? 70 AD. Preterism teaches that every event normally associated with the end times, Christ's second coming, the tribulation, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment has already happened. In the case of the final judgment, it is in the process of being fulfilled. Jesus' return to earth was spiritual, not a physical one. Jesus returned spiritually. It's, it, yeah, it's pr- pretty much salvation. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Kind of idea. All right. Does that make sense? I'm not saying, I'm not saying we have to agree with it. I'm just making sure we understand it. All right. Preterism teaches that the law was fulfilled in 70 AD and God's covenant with Israel was ended. Did everybody hear that? The law was fulfilled in 70 AD and God's covenant with Israel was ended. The new heavens and new earth spoken of in Revelation 21 is to the preterists a description of the world under the new covenant. New heaven and new earth, that's the new covenant. Just as, just as a Christian is made a new creature, right? Or a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So the world under the new covenant is a new earth. This aspect of preterism can lead to the, to the belief in replacement theology. What is replacement theology? The church has replaced Israel. Yeah, all right. So, new heavens, new earth, right now. You're a new creature. We have a new, we have a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah, because, uh, well, yeah. We, we, well, there's, a lot we can, there's a lot we can say about this. All right, now here we go. Preterist usually points to a passage in Jesus' Olivet Discourse to bolster their argument. Now, this is very important. They typically go to the Olivet Discourse to prove their point. They would argue Matthew 24 proves their point. Now, this is very important. Why do you think they would even come, why do you think they would turn to uh, the Olivet Discourse? As proving their point. Why? Because the context clearly is pointing to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So this is the go-to. I will argue the best argument for a preterist is the Olivet Discourse. That, the, the, thing that first, the thing that first got me to go, whoa, wait a minute here. It's because every sermon I ever heard about Matthew 24 was like, hey, here's the newspaper. Here's Matthew 24. War. Rumors of war. Earthquakes. I'd be like, whoa, Jesus is coming back in 15 minutes. Okay, and then, and then the preterist is like, did you read verse, the first part? You're like, oh. Okay, I'm dumb. So then you immediately think, I misinterpreted this my whole life. Then you're thinking, this preterist view works. Right? Until then you start, then you start having difficult problems. But you see why, why it, it works so well? Because, because most of the time, I mean, probably a lot of you went to church forever and never, uh, that, that's what you heard was, 
Well, Matthew 24 is quoted about the end times, 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 the end times. I, I probably heard multiple sermons at First Baptist Church in Tuscola when I was a teenager on Jesus is coming soon, Matthew 24, and over and over and over and over and over. Well, then the preterist, I realize, man, and that makes, it makes you mad at first. It's like, well, why didn't they mention 70 A.D.? Because you can't study Matthew 24 and not mention 70 A.D. unless you should be sued for spiritual malpractice. you got to talk about it. But what verse do you think they use in Matthew 24 to bolster their argument? According to this, you ready? It's Matthew 24, verse 34. Oh, yeah, this one makes a lot of sense. Matthew 24, 34. Someone, someone read it out loud so that everyone listening online can hear you. This generation shall not pass to all these things be fulfilled. Would everyone agree that's a problem? All right, so what are the ways of getting around this? What's some of the ways that's been suggested to get around this? Do what? Okay, well, I'm saying what are the ways to get around it? Yeah, that would not get you around it. (laughs) You're you're arguing like a good preterist right there. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Someone say he's telling them a parable. This is usually the way it works. Generation doesn't mean generation. So therefore, it can still be applicable today. So second, that the generation he's referring to is not the generation he was speaking to, but the generation who sees those signs. The only problem with that is, wait a minute, those signs, we've seen many of those signs. So that doesn't work. In fact, every generation has seen most of those signs, yes? Some say, well, only the generation who sees the signs that haven't been fulfilled. You're like, so the, that gets confusing. The, no matter what you do here, you have problems. All right? Now, everyone do this. Just, just, and we'll, we're going to get into this more. Just grab the Blue Letter Bible app really quick. Look up the word generations just to see if there's a way around it. You can look it up. Do you see anything that like, oh, I, I got a way out. I got a way out. Do you see anything? Okay. Some say it's vague. Do you see anything? Does it specifically define how long a generation is? An age. An age. Okay. But it typically is used to describe a 30 to 33 year period. Now, but the text, okay, so, so some try to go to the word to find a way around it. But the problem is the text creates the problem. Go back to the text. What does the text specifically say? What word? This. Does the NIV use this? All right, now there's the problem because that identifies a specific generation. 
Now, if he's not talking to that generation, then to this generation, he's pointing to some other generation. But then how do you know which dad? Then it becomes really confusing. There's a problem. Does everyone see a problem? Now, if you're a preterist, you're like, bum, bum, ba-da, we win! Yes? Agreed? Everyone, look, you can try, you can sit there for 13 hours trying to find a way around it. Just agree, okay? There, there, there's no easy way around it, okay? Let, let's just, let's not pretend there's just no, I mean, we can try, we can try. You can, you can start looking up every commentary, calling a friend. You can, you can do everything. There's no easy way around it, okay? Well, well, but that goes against the things that come before. Right, but I'm still, I mean, no, no matter what we do, that, 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 that's still a problem. All right, now, the preterist takes, now, here, here's the key. So this is what the preterist does. So everybody agrees, Matthew 24, 34 is an issue. In fact, I think Sproul dedicates an entire chapter to it. All right, I think, uh, let me see here. Because this is like, I mean, this is like game over in their minds, okay? Um, let me see here, I got to find it. I got things marked. Yeah. Uh, chapter, what chapter is this? Chapter 2 in the book. All right, here we go. He quotes Matthew 24, 34. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. And then what generation will witness the end? The second chapter of the book, I mean, you're going in, he's bringing in the big guns because this is like the best argument they have. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the argument. Okay? A lot of people think that the, the, to get around this is simple. I, I don't think, look, I've looked at every, I've looked at all kinds of people trying to get around it. Generation doesn't mean generation. Well, it only means the generation that will see what. And then they try to pick which things that, well, when they see this. But in some of those things, people have been seeing forever. So it doesn't even make sense. And how many generations have to come and go before you realize, man, we're getting into a problem here. I mean, just think, Jesus said that around 30-something A.D., right? We're in 2022, people. That's been a lot of generations to come and go. So you can see that that, that creates some problems, all right? Now, but this is how the preterist takes it. You ready? The preterist takes this to mean that everything Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24 had to have occurred within one generation of his speaking. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was therefore judgment day. So they interpret that that generation had to see everything in Matthew 24. If they didn't, then Jesus' prophecy was a lie. Now you can see why they're holding it. Now, this is where it gets funny, right? I want you to watch this. This is, we're all guilty of this. I want you, because this drives me crazy about Christians. We play such weird games when it comes to the Bible. Okay, so here's, here's the way the game is played, right? So the preterists will take a lot of these signs and spiritualize them, right? A new heaven just means well, you know, it's new because we're in a new covenant. Israel doesn't mean Israel, and they just go very spiritual with some of the stuff. Yes? Jesus didn't come back literally. He came back 
spiritually. So they're going to go spiritualize it. But they get to Matthew 24, 34, literal, one generation. But those of us who are like, literal, 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 we get to Matthew 24, 34, and we're like, well, I mean, a generation may not be a generation. And then all of a sudden, we get very loose with it. What, 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 what do we learn from that? People play games to prove their side. We don't need to play those games. Hey, I know, I, 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 I can watch it happen all the time, right? I, 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 I can say something and you just immediately see people are like, I'm going to find the, I'm going to, he's wrong, he's wrong. Just calm down. Just calm down. We don't have to prove a side. Guess what? Sometimes we don't have good answers. It's okay. It's okay. I wish I had a good answer. There's not a good answer here. Right? You, we can, I'll bring in all the commentaries and let you start reading all, all their attempts to get around it. And some of them are just laughable. You're just like, what in the world is that? Okay. But, so I just want you to realize, sometimes we just gotta, we just gotta wait and see, right? We're gonna see what MacArthur, or we're gonna see what Sproul does with it at some point. I mean, we got a long ways to go to get through all of this, okay? Alright, here we go. Are you ready? Here are some of the problems with preterism. Alright, you ready? Number one. God's covenant with Israel is an everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 36. And there will be a future restoration of Israel. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12. The Apostle Paul warned against those who, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, teach falsely that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. 2 Timothy 2, 17 through 18. But wait, before you write that last one down, what do we need to do at this moment in time? What do we need to look up? Second Timothy, get to work. Everybody, Bible dictionaries, get to work. We need as many sources as possible. What is the date of Second Timothy? What's the date for 2 Timothy? If that was 2 Thessalonians, what would we have to do? Oh, that's not helpful. What was the date? 2 Timothy. 67. You see, what, you see what I'm doing here, right? See, that we, a lot of you don't like, pre, I, I would say most of us here, we would reject preterism, right? So when you read something that says, see, he told Hymenaeus and Philetus that, you, you know, they're bad because they said the resurrection has already passed. See, this proves preter, preterism is false. No, because he said this when? Before 70 AD. And where did preterists say all of the prophecies were fulfilled? 70 AD. So this doesn't work. You see the problem? Does anybody have anything else here that they got? 
So again, second Tim- go ahead and look up 2 Timothy 2, 17 through 18, just so that you see it for yourself. See, this is why you got to look things up and look things up and look things up and look things up and look things up. Because, man, whatever you read is, is, I'm telling you, I don't trust anything anybody writes, okay? All right, everybody looking at it? All right. I'm just going to click on the version they use here. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. And they're like, see, preterism doesn't work because Paul condemns those who say the resurrection has already passed. But he's quoting, they're, they're referencing Paul, who was writing prior to 70 AD. So that, why is this in an article trying to argue against preterism? <laughs> okay. okay, so that's like, oh, that drives me crazy. Now, their first part of arguments are good, right? So what are some of the weaknesses with preterism? God's covenant with Israel is everlasting. Well, the, the main thing is when they get to New Testament prophecy, they say Israel's gone. And all, the new covenant has been given to us. So that's where the... Yeah, right. So, the, and, and now you see, I don't remember how many years ago, you see why I made such an issue of forever, forever, forever. And whatever sermon that was that created all the controversy. Now, now you see why I stress that so much. Because all these years later, what are we still coming back to? Forever. You see why all of these years later, I'm still talking about forever. If God made a covenant with for Israel that's forever, it is forever. You see why now I stress that all of those years ago. Okay. Now, uh, Isaiah 11 speaks of a future restoration. I do agree that preterism falls massively short right here because you got to get Israel out of the picture and you have no future restoration of Israel. That's a problem. Now, that doesn't help me with Matthew 24, 34, but it does make me realize preterism has a problem here. All right? Does that make sense? Now, their 2 Timothy 1, I, I don't, that's just, I, that's garbage there because they're, they're making our argument against preterist pointing to something written prior to 70 AD. It doesn't work. And Jesus mentioned of this generation, all right, are you ready? Okay. This is how they get around it. You ready for their, 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 what do you think they're going to say? This generation should be taken to mean the generation that is alive to see the beginning of the events described in Matthew 24. Well, it should be taken to mean the generation that is alive to see the beginning of the events described in Matthew 24. Look at the events described in Matthew 24. Twyla knows them because she charted them all out. What are some of the immediate events described? Yeah. Right. Well, see, that's what I thought they were going to do. But the, how did he say the, the generation that sees the beginning of these events? 
he would have to specify which events. Right now, that's the only way to get around it. So this is what they would do. Go to back to Matthew 24. So the way that's written is not helpful. Right. There, there we go. OK, but look at 2434. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things being fulfilled. The these things they're referring to can't be the things that have, they, if there are everything before, we have a problem. So do they have to be the things coming after? Well, that's not helpful because look at the things that come right before these things. What are the things that are described coming before? Just go back to verse 23. Hey, someone's going to say there's a Christ, there's a false Christ. Okay, then what's going to happen? Verse 27. Lightning come out of the east and shine even unto the west, so shall the coming of the, of the Son of Man be. For wherever, whosoever the, uh, for Wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation and those of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. So now if you say the generation is only the people who see those things, that would be a correct way to state it. The way the article is written to see the beginning of these events. Well, which events? Because if I go back to the beginning of Matthew 24... Well, right. Yeah, they, they, they didn't word it very well, but I just want you to see, they, they have to limit which events. They have to say, we're going to start in verse 26 or, or 27. Yeah, we're going to start in 27. So the, the events listed in 27 fall, that's arbitrary. Why do you pick 27? Why do you pick 27? Everything else could already be argued as being fulfilled. You see, that's, that's, that's like, that's playing games. Hey, okay, look, I don't have an answer for all the other events, but starting in 27, okay, boom, that's the generation. Well, then Jesus saying this generation, he wasn't referring to the generation he was talking to then. He was referring to a generation that still hasn't even been born. Yeah. This generation, he should have been saying, a future generation. So it becomes, it's still not a great way to get around it, right? I mean, I can argue it from the preterist view. I can try to argue against it from the preterist view. The, the, to me, the, it's just so arbitrary. Like, hey, when you start seeing ver- the things happen in verse 27, then you know you're the generation. Do you see the issues there? Okay, we still haven't gotten, oh man, are we already out of time? You, okay, no, we still got a little bit of time. All right, so... <laughs> Now, this is their attempt to answer it. Now, look what, this is the last paragraph. You ready? Eschatology is a complex subject. And the Bible's use of apocalyptic imagery to relate many prophecies has led to a variety of interpretations of end-time events. There is room for some disagreement within Christianity regarding these things. However, full preterism has some serious flaws that it denies the physical reality of Christ's coming and downplays the dreadful nature of the tribulation by restricting those events to the fall of Jerusalem. Bottom line is, hey, there's some things we don't like about preterism. We don't really have any good answers. Just remember it's kind of complex and don't worry about it. Okay, well, uh, you didn't come anywhere close to answering about this generation, okay? You did, because I don't have a good answer for it. Nobody has a good answer for it. All right. So, 
There we have preterism. Any questions about preterism? That took 45 minutes, but okay. Okay, what? I think that, I, here's what I think the problems are with preterism. The, the covenant with Israel being done away with. All right, that, that, I think that's clearly a problem. I think the uh, replacing uh, the church okay, is a problem. I think, I think the third problem is trying to explain the second coming, coming in a spiritual way and not a physical way. That, because the confessions of faith, going all the way back to the creeds, what do the creeds say? Christ will come to judge the living. It seems to speak of a physical reality. Go to, go to the book of Acts. Do this really quick. And find the section, I think it's chapter 1, where uh, Jesus ascends to heaven. And then angels appear after he ascends. So I think it's Acts chapter 1. Jesus leaves. These angels appear. And what do they say to the disciples? Because the disciples are kind of like, what just happened? What just happened? He just ascended right up. All right, that's Acts chapter 1, verse what? 11. The same Jesus, the same one, is going to come what? In like manner. Seeming to refer to an actual physical return. That's where I have a problem with preterism. Now, I love preterism in the sense that, man, you know how easy that is to answer Matthew 24, 34? But guess what? If I, it's easy to answer Matthew 24, 34. Guess what? It's not so easy to answer. Acts 1, 11. You see the problem? So, Oh, and there's other scriptures as well, but I'm just saying that's an easy one to go to. That's like the go-to. So like, some, this is the problem. Sometimes you create an answer to one problem and you end up creating questions to a different problem. And this happens in every area of theology. I don't care where it is. When we're talking justification, sanctification. Well, I can't say at the top of my head. I'd have to look at all the different ways, right? But the problem is, is a, a partial one would say, well, okay, well, that part will come. That part is going to come back. All right. So, so that, that's a partial one. All right. I think most people are partial. I don't think most are full. Well, because, well, the full one just creates some problems. If you're partial, you can kind of play it. You can say, well, see, th- you can get around Matthew 24, 34 to a little, uh, well, you may actually create a problem there. In other words, it can become difficult in, in, in either way. All right, there's preterism. Everybody got that? Okay, now, here's what we're going to do really quick. If you, if for those who uh, have the curriculum, open up the curriculum really quick. For those who participate in the Bible study exercise. All right. The curriculum. It says it has big letters. Introduction. And I always, you know, I always do this. I always try to interpret the picture. What in the world is that? It's a checkered flag, right? So what does the checkered flag represent in a race? The end. The end of the race. So this, they're, obviously this study is going to be about the end. The end. The checkered flag. The end. Okay, so that, that's the symbolism there. Everybody see that? 
And then underneath that picture, it says, Christ's return, living with the end in mind. Immediately stop right there. What does that give you? What does that signify that the curriculum is going to do with Matthew 24? Futuristic, not preteristic. All right. Okay, so immediately we know which way they're going to go. All right. Then they have this to say. If you want to know about the future, people will line up at your door. Economists like to give financial forecasts. Political analysis analysts will predict who might win the next election. Sports reporters will predict which team will win the championship. But who can tell us what things will be like at the end of the world? No one is qualified to tell us about this all-important subject except the perfect, sinless Son of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did in the section of his teaching called... The Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 through 25. So immediately that tells us the curriculum is going to look at it from which point of view? That this is pointing to the end times. Now, I'm not going to go through any more of the curriculum. I just want everyone to access it this week. And what do I want you to look for? What's the only thing I want you to look for this week in the curriculum? What do you think? The only thing I want you to look for this week in the curriculum. You can just skim it. What do you think? (laughs) 70 AD. That's all I care for you to look for in the curriculum. What do they say about 70 AD? Okay, for those who are listening along, like, what was happening? I was trying to draw the number on an imaginary board, okay? All right. 70 AD, that's all I care for. And if they mention 70 AD, what do they say about it? That's all I care. Because how in the world can you talk about Matthew 24 through 25 and not mention 70 AD? If it's not mentioned once, we will sue Lifeway for spiritual malpractice, okay? I don't think we'll win, but we should, Okay. We're not actually going to sue Lifeway, so someone online, take the clip and put it on YouTube. I'm not saying that. Okay, it's a joke. But I do get mad when I listen to a sermon on Matthew 24 and somehow 70 AD just seems to get completely ignored. That's that's why I'm so thankful for preterists. I am so thankful for preterists. Because they force us to go, wait, what about 70 AD? Remember, what's, what's my philosophy when it comes to any passage dealing with biblical prophecy? What's my, what's my philosophy that I've tried to teach y'all? Look for any possible past fulfillment. If you can find a past fulfillment, stop and don't look for any future. Okay? Always, that's always your first go-to thing. Now, what most people say, well, there could be a past, but there still could be a future. Okay, well, if I find a complete past fulfillment, why do I look for a future one? That sounds like you're more committed to your team than you are to biblical truth. I don't, and again, I don't care. Let me state it again. I don't care if I make the dispensationalist mad, the preterist mad, the amillennialist mad, the premillennialist mad. I don't care about your little eschatology system. I don't care. I'm not on your team. Kick me out of your team. I don't care. The fact that everyone is so committed to a team is where all the problem is in eschatology because I don't think one team has the answer. Okay? 
Yeah, the pamillennialists can't be mad because they believe it's all going to pan out in the end. Okay, right? I do believe that that's true in some ways. But we can look to what we can know. All right? Now, let's do this. We only have a little bit of time. There's the curriculum. So those in the Bible study exercise, what's your, what's your homework? Any reference to 78? That's the easiest homework you've ever been given. Okay? All right? Yes? All right. Now, we're going to go quickly to R.C. Sproul's book. And he starts this chapter with this scripture, Matthew 24, 30. I'm going to read it as he translates it in the book. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. What is significant about that verse? What is significant about that verse? We just spent an hour studying preterism, everyone. What is significant about that verse? It says everyone's going to see. See. Do you see a spiritual return? Does it, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It seems to be a physical. It seems to be describing a physical return. The only problem is that's verse thirty, right? What happens? Okay. Well, the sign, the sign of the Son of Man could be an issue, but even that, they're going to see the sign. So, what is the sign of the Son of Man? But then you get to verse thirty-four, and then you see you see where well, people are like, well, wait a minute. Now we have the generation, so they had to have seen this in that generation. So this is where the problem began. I just want you to see that that seems to indicate that it will be seen. Right? Now, there's a lot of questions we could have. So that's where he starts with. Now, I like the way, why would he start there? Because that could be the verse that a lot of people would may go, wait a minute, this destroys the preterist view. But he's going to start there, which is kind of cool. I like that. That's kind of cool. All right, now, here we go. I'm going to do some skipping around here because some of this we've already considered, but I just want to get us as far as we can before we have to stop. All right. Matthew 24. And uh, let's see here. Just so that everyone notes, and you want to have this in your notes, the, uh, the Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Everyone needs to know all three of those. Right? We've already talked about this before, yes? Okay, all right. The Olivet Discourse takes its name from the place where Jesus delivered it. The discourse is recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke chapter 21. This is the longest teaching discourse recorded in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple says William L. Lane. The questions posed by the form and content of the chapter and by its relationship to the gospel as a whole are complex and difficult and have been the occasion of an extensive literature. Now what Lane said of Mark can be said of Matthew and Luke. So you could say that the Olivet Discourse is what? One of the most problematic prophetic discourses in the New 
Testament. Everybody remember this? We've already talked about this once before. I'm just trying to bring us back together. Bible scholars have done what in regards to the uh, Olivet Discourse? Questioned its authenticity. All right. Sometimes the Olivet Discourse is called by a different name. Small Apocalypse. All right. The suggestion that some scholars have offered is that in, in, in anticipation of the horrors of the siege of Jerusalem, some unknown Christian edited a small Jewish or Jewish Christian apocalypse as a kind of fly, a fly sheet to give encouragement and hope to the Christians of his day and incorporated them with the eschatological sayings of Jesus. So some think what someone did is they're like, man, things are looking bad. Things are looking bad. They found a Jewish apocalypse and they took it. And then they threw in a couple of sayings from Jesus and boom, that's how it came to be. So it's not an authentic, like, you know, they would almost argue, it's not an authentic inspired thing. Someone just threw it together. All right. Obviously, we would reject that idea. Yes. Okay. All right. Other theories have claimed that the discourse is either completely inauthentic. In other words, it, you just, just rip it out of your Bible. It doesn't even belong. Just rip it out. Okay, or it reflects the work of a later redactor or editor. In other words, some say this came much later. This came way later, and then they, they put it together, and then it all ends up in the Bible at some later point in time. Okay, now why do you think there was so much attempt to throw it out? Nobody knows what in the world to do with it. Okay, when it's difficult, what do you do? Throw it out. Like, what, what, for, and sometimes in school, they'll say, you take your lowest grade, throw it out. Okay, well, this is an essay. Everyone's going to get a low grade on this. The Olivet Discourse, everyone's going to get a low grade. So we're just going to throw it out, okay, so that everybody can get a passing grade in Bible. Because <laughs> Olivet Discourse, everyone's going to fail, all right? Um. <clears throat> And they, there's a lot more they could say that we could say there, but I'm not going to go through all the theories, but a lot of theories just basically like, just skip it. Just skip it. All right? Jesus begins the Olivet Discourse with a statement about every stone of the temple being thrown down. It is important to note that the entire discourse is provoked by his words about the destruction of the temple. Can we all agree on that? The disciples responded to his prediction by asking about the time frame for this event. All right. Now, the, the questions that we'll have to talk about it more in a minute. For time's sake, I'm just going to proceed. All right. In all three Gospels, the, the, they say the disciples asked two questions. All right. Everybody open up Matthew 24, Mark 13 and Luke 21. Everybody open up those three, those three things. Now, Twyla's already done all the homework here, okay? But, so she may already have her answers written down, okay? But at, let's, let's start this. Everyone can agree that this entire discourse starts with questions about Jesus mentioning the destruction of the temple. Everyone knows that. And then they ask questions. 
What questions are asked? He, uh, Sproul mentions two questions. I've always thought there's more. Okay. But what questions are asked? Okay. Okay. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? Right. There's not a separate question mark, but I still think there's three questions there. Okay. That was Matthew, right? Mark asked what two questions? Okay. What? What? When? When is the sign, or what is the sign when they're all going to be fulfilled? And then Luke 21, what are the three? There's, when shall these things be? Okay, there's two. All right, all right, two. So, so, so we can clearly say, other than that, when is the end of the world, that, that phrase in Matthew, which is where everything gets confusing, all the other ones don't talk about the end of the world. They're just like, hey, when are these things going to happen? Right? I mean, you can break it down into two, but they're simply like, so when are these things going to happen? And, and what is the sign? What are these things uh, going to happen? And what is the sign? Now, the question everyone has is, what is about, what's the thing about the end of the world? What about the end of the world? What about the end of the world? What about the end of the world? That's where a lot of people are like, okay, see, this has to be future. This has to be future. Okay, now, let's just be honest here. Clearly, first and foremost, hey, when are these things going to happen? Like, when, when are you going to return? Any of those kinds of questions are clearly related to, they just received some pretty serious, scary things about the destruction of the temple. All right. So how could we understand? What are some possible ways of understanding the, the possible question asked in Matthew what this, about the end of the world? What are some ways we could understand this? All right, that, wait a minute, the, the, that for them, this would seem to indicate the end of everything, right? I mean, the end of the temple seems to be like, that's the end of everything, okay? So maybe it's just a way of saying like, hey, you're saying the world's going to end? When is this all going to happen, all right? What, what's another possible way of understanding it? Now, Bobby brought this up, I think, a week ago, and I think it's really, I think it's important. We've already looked at it this morning, that they were anticipating what? The setting up of the temple. Remember, we read some verses about, hey, I'm going to come back, and you're going to sit on 12 thrones, and and we're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Even in Acts 1, are you going to set up the kingdom now? So maybe in their minds, they're asking, so the end of the world and your kingdom, like, what? So when, when, is this, when are you going to set up your kingdom kind of concept? The end of the world for them would be the end of this age and the kingdom age is going to come in. Right? So in other words, all I'm trying to say is we see that and we immediately do what? Second coming! And their minds, it may not have been like, oh, okay, so this has got to happen and then we get that kingdom. Then we get those tr- the, the thrones and then we get the restoration of everything and the end of all of this. In other words, the end of what we know, 
versus all the promises that we have been given. I think that there's a good way of, of seeing it that way. All right. Now, that would make a, a good argument for the preterist view, but I don't care. I don't care. Look, I'm not worried about trying to make sure I'm proving one wrong. I'm just trying to be fair with all of them. Okay. So I don't think that question necessarily 100% means anything there. Okay. Now, in all three Gospels, this, they say uh, that two questions are asked. When will these things be and what will be the sign of that fulfillment? We notice, however, that only one of the three accounts includes the question about the coming of Christ at the end of the age. This question is reported by Matthew, but omitted uh, by both Luke and Mark. And his commentary on the harmony of the, uh, of the evangelist, John Calvin says that what is explicit in Matthew is implicit in Mark and Luke. Mark mentions four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, but neither he nor Luke states the matter so fully as Matthew. For they only say that the disciples inquired about the, about the time of the destruction of the temple, and as it was a thing difficult to be believed, what outward sign of it God would give from heaven. Matthew tells us that they inquired about the time of Christ's coming and the end of the world. But it must be observed that having believed from their infancy that the temple would still stand in the end time, and having this opinion deeply rooted in their minds, they did not suppose that while the building of the world stood, the temple would fall into ruins. Accordingly, as soon as Christ said that the temple would be destroyed, their thoughts immediately returned to the end of the world. They associated the coming of Christ and the end of the world as things inseparable from each other. And I think we can agree with that. All right? Now, we'll have to stop right there because we're out of time. Okay? Yeah, we're out of time. In fact, we went over time. So, any questions? You know, I know what preterism is. Yes. Right? And what's the most, most important thing to understand from all of this? What's the, probably, when it comes to preterism, what's the strongest argument for preterism? Matthew 24, 34. Right? The weakness is other areas. Yes? The question they ask don't really... I don't think that proves one thing or the other. I don't think that's helpful for any view. It's just, what I, here's what I know the questions. That means that they want to know when the destruction of that temple is, and to say otherwise is ridiculous. Because in their minds, that, that's everything. Okay? That's what we have to keep in mind. So as we go through Matthew 24, Luke, and Mark, what should we look for? Signs that point to 70 A.D. We will do everything in our power. We will listen to the preterists explain how all of them were fulfilled. If when we run to a problem and we don't think it works, we'll say so. I don't, I don't care who gets offended because what we want to know is what to do with it. If it was simple, it, not all these commentaries would say, this is the most difficult passage. No, they wouldn't say that. It's difficult. There's not an easy answer. But you're, for, so for your homework this week, read the curriculum. Look for any mention of 70 AD. That's all you have to do. And just keep working on Matthew. Just keep reading Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. That's all you have to do. This is easy week. All right? Okay? And then Wednesday night, we'll jump back in and see how far we can take it. Now, come tomorrow when I do a live broadcast, I may come up with homework. Okay, but all right. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Oh, you still got the chapter summary method. Yeah, still the chapter summary method to do, but, but that was old homework. We, we've already moved on. Okay. I know. It's all, chapter summary method is not easy. Okay. And then for those listening online, still I need to, uh, I want to, making a, a chart of what's in Matthew, what's in Mark, and what's in Luke. What's the same and what is different? Because, why is that so important? Because we've got to make sure we can say all of it was fulfilled or wait a minute. Mark gives us seven things that there's no way it was fulfilled. Or Luke gives us three things. You see what I'm, how, why we're doing that. Okay. Do what? Oh, oh, she posted her. Okay. Awesome. All right. Everybody good? All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you uh, this evening. It's awesome that we have the ability to study such a difficult passage. But it's humbling to realize that in 2,000 years of church history, no one has a definitive answer. Lord, we don't quite understand everything that's being said here. We don't really understand how that generation saw all of these things or what generation is even spoken of. We just know that we are going to do our best to be fair and we're going to try to understand it and try to see what we can learn from it. But it hopefully, every hour of study makes us more and more humble, demonstrating our own frailty and how much we do not know instead of just making us arrogant and puffed up because this should break us all of that arrogance because this is a very complicated subject. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...